Hi, everyone. We're so excited today for episode nine of Cosmos Crusaders with Professor Monsi Kalsuwal from Caltech. Um, she's a professor of astronomy who just recently got tenure in 2021, and she was Gokul's advisor while he was there. And we're really excited for this episode as she's the first professor on the show, and we had a really great talk with her that Gok's going to go a little bit over right now before we get into the interview. Yeah, so uh, Professor Kasua was my undergraduate advisor who I did my senior thesis with uh, at Caltech. And I think the episode was, and our interview with her was really interesting. And it was really interesting for me, um, especially because I've been working with her for since my junior year of undergrad, and I'm still kind of working with the Palmer-Gatini Infrared Survey. Um, so it's been like four years. So it was really interesting to get sort of a different perspective um, into her career and also sort of um, her mindset of how she approaches um, being a professor. Um, and one of the things that she talks about a lot um, is how important her students are to her and um, how important just the best part of being a professor um, was that she gets to work with students and be a mentor. Um, and I just thought that that was really refreshing to hear. Um, and really, um, I guess it's just something that isn't always seen in the field today, I think. Um, a lot of the times people get lost in sort of research and there's a lot of um, sort of administrative stuff that goes on behind the scenes that I'm sure a lot of people know about. And sort of just that love for teaching and that love for being a mentor research-wise um, and professionally to just students is something that I just think isn't emphasized enough in the community. Um, but she is someone that really emphasizes that um, and I've experienced that firsthand um, because she has helped me get to where I am in my career and definitely wouldn't be where I am without her. And I think that it was really interesting to hear her perspective on all those things in this episode. And yeah, she is an amazing professor, and she's already achieved so many great things um, in her career, both scientifically um, and also just through the relationships that she's had with her students that have gone on also to do a lot of amazing things already. So this is a really great episode. Uh, I thought that was really interesting, and I was really happy that we were able to get her on the show. So I hope that you guys all feel the same. So yeah, thanks for tuning in, and we'll get right into it. Hi, everyone. We're very excited to have our next episode of Cosmos Crusaders, and this is definitely a special one, as we have our first professor on the show. It's really exciting, and someone who had a big influence on me, and definitely where I am in my career right now, so I'm really looking forward to this. So um, we're really happy to have Professor Monty Kasiwal. She is an astronomy professor at Caltech, recently earned tenure um, in 2021, so congratulations. Uh, so she grew up in India, uh, in Indore, which is a city in western central India. Um, she got her Bachelor's of Science in Applied Engineering Physics from Cornell in 2004. She got her PhD in Astrophysics from Caltech in 2011 with her thesis, Bridging the Gap, Elusive Explosions in the Local Universe, advised by Professor Sri Fulkarni. After that, she was a Hubble and Carnegie postdoc fellow at Princeton, and then went back to Caltech to become a professor, which is where she still is right now. Uh, she also won the 2022 Breakthrough New Horizons in Physics Award, which is a pretty big deal, uh, for leadership in laying foundations for electromagnetic observations of sources of gravitational waves and leadership in extracting rich information from the first observed collision of two neutron stars. So already a very 
polished resume. Uh, so it's really <laughs> exciting to have you on the show. Thank you, Gokul. My pleasure. So we're just going to get started by talking about your research. So um, your research spans a very wide range of subfields in astronomy and astrophysics. This includes investigating high energy phenomena, time domain and multi-messenger astrophysics, stellar astrophysics, and instrumentation. And you're also involved in a large capacity for a multitude of telescope surveys, including being the lead, being one of the leads or the lead for the science teams for the Palmer Gattini Infrared Survey and Zwicky Transit Facility. So given that you're involved in so many projects, the first question that we wanted to ask you in relation to your research is, what are the highest level questions that you're trying to understand about the universe that sort of ties all the projects that you're a part of together, even if it's in like a very loose sense? Sure. <clears throat> so all of these projects have one thing in common. They are all trying to understand how dynamic our universe is. So they're all looking for cosmic fireworks and different flavors, colors, um, brightness, time scales. And in terms of unifying questions, you know, the one, one of the ones that you know, keeps me up at night or, or is, is motivating enough to get out of bed at night when, when, when a transient happens is um, where do the elements that you and I are made up of, where do they actually come from? And you know, most of the universe is, is pretty simple. It's mostly hydrogen and helium, which is only the first row of the periodic table. And most of the other rows, right, they are either made in the cores of massive stars or during supernova explosions. That's the next few rows. And then the next few rows are made in neutron star mergers um, and possibly neutron star black hole mergers, though we haven't seen one yet. We've, we've heard one, but we haven't seen one yet. And so understanding where all these elements that are the building blocks of life and the world and as we know it, you know, where are they actually truly created? What are the original cosmic minds? Um, that's the, the unifying question that I would say um, motivates me to study cosmic fireworks, catch them in the act of forming, naturally get out of bed at 2 a.m. to trigger telescopes <laughs> and all that fun stuff. Or call my students, Goko, <laughs> at 2 a.m. It requires motivation, but that's the fun question that I think drives it. That's so awesome. Like, it's really interesting to see how Gokul's work is like on a much larger scale than how I imagine it to be. But is this like the question that you think you'll be working on like for throughout the rest of your career? And if so, like, how do you think you envision progress being made towards these discoveries? Um. I don't know about the rest of my career. I think it's I'm sufficiently excited about it that I can I see a lot of potential in the coming decade. Um, but then beyond the decade, I, I I dare not make any predictions. You know, astrophysics is such a dynamic field. I mean, literally with multi-messenger astrophysics, we are rewriting the textbook as we speak. So what happens beyond ten years? I I wouldn't dare to predict. I think it's important to keep an open mind and. And, um, you know, let curiosity drive it and look for the next next opportunity, the next frontier. Um, so I'm quite sure I think I'd be working towards this goal for at least the 2020s, but 2030s might be a new chapter. <laughs> so. Yeah, that sounds really exciting. Um, 
I guess I'll also be working towards a lot of this in my 2020. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, the future looks really exciting in uh, the field of time domain astronomy. Um, so this question is one I was wondering sort of on a personal level because I've been thinking about these questions as I've been doing my research. So why do you think it's important that we understand high energy astrophysical phenomena like cosmic fireworks, sort of in the context of astronomy and physics as a whole? And also what personally drove you towards wanting to study these types of events? Yeah, um, so let me answer the first part. In the larger context, um, understanding these high energy phenomena and these cosmic fireworks, they're just the most unique laboratory that we have, right? Uh, we're talking about, you know, densities that are unimaginable when we're talking about neutron stars and black holes. We're talking about strong field gravity in its most exotic form in action. Um, so we're talking about fundamental forces of nature, like something in a neutron star, like all four fundamental forces of physics are at play. Otherwise, the thing wouldn't be stable. It wouldn't work, right? So it's such an amazing laboratory for fundamental physics and in fact, it's the it's a unique way to study it, right? Because there's no way you could get a teaspoon of a neutron star in your lab. Um, it would cause major problems. <laughs> um, but um, so studying that, studying thinking of these as cosmic laboratories for physics um, helps us answer questions in physics that we just cannot answer in the laboratory alone. Um, so in the broader context, I would say they are very important. Um, to to develop our understanding further of uh, for, for fundamental questions, and personally, I would say it's um, <clears throat> it's just one of those fields where there are very simple, very basic questions that are still waiting to be answered, and we have this nice confluence of opportunity where um, the sensitivity of different probes in both the electromagnetic and the gravitational wave and the neutrino spectrum, all these sensitivities of instruments, right, uh, have just reached a new order of magnitude. So they've opened up this, this opportunity to answer some very basic questions. Um, so the timing is, is just right for pursuing multi-messenger or time domain astrophysics in this decade. I wish you guys both the best of luck for all the work that you're going to have to put <laughs> in these next 10 years. But we were wondering a little bit more about your background and how you came mm -hmm. to get to this point. So what was it like your experiences growing up in India, doing elementary school and high school there? And were there any barriers that you had to face as someone who was interested in STEM? Yeah, no, that's a wonderful question. Um, so I grew up in a um, in a village outside Indore called Manglia on a farm. And, um, you know, my, my parents had a dairy farm for uh, where they had a hundred cows that for milk. <laughs> so I know how to milk a cow. That's one of my secret talents. <laughs> um, but um, uh, growing up, I mean, I, I lived a very sheltered life. My parents protected me from everything, right? I mean, um, I went to the same school, which was the, the closest school from the farm but also really good, awesome school. I love my school. Um, from kindergarten to about 10th grade. So for 12 years, I was in exactly the same, same school. Um, and uh, in India, there are two years of kindergarten. So, um, so that's why it's, it's 12 years. Um, but by the, after 10th grade is when I came to the US. And that's when um, I came to a high school um, in the US called Pomfret School. 
and and that's when um, I would say, uh, you know, my, my eyes opened to the the rest of the world and the challenges. Um, it wasn't all smooth sailing. It was um, quite it was quite a culture shock from my very protected, very sheltered life until then to high school here, which is which is not easy, as I'm sure you guys have experienced. Um, and it and I was really the odd one out in many, many respects. I mean, um, I'd come, you know, with my eyes glowing that, oh, I can do all these experiments in the labs and this and that, um, not realizing that I would be, you know, the only one with a different skin color or the only one who was vegetarian, you know, and didn't eat meat or the only one who didn't quite know how to party. <laughs> okay. Um, or the only one who dressed a little differently or thought a little differently, you know, I mean, it was, um, it was quite, um, quite a tough experience, I would say, at that age, where you're still not old enough, mature enough to, um, to know how to navigate those things. So, um, so there were a few stumbling blocks, let's just put it this way, a few teary phone calls to my parents, like, what, what just happened? <laughs> Where have I landed? <laughs> but um, but you fight through those and you you work through those one at a time. Um, you make some some friends and and try to navigate that. Um, but I'd say that was the toughest year. The first year that I was here um, in a high school, um, first time away from home, first time in a completely different cultural context. That was my hardest year um, by far. Yeah. Yeah, that you must have had a really high amount of mental strength to get through that. And it's really admirable because <laughs> already high school here, even being from here is already pretty rough. So I can't imagine <laughs> what it was like being coming from India and having to go through that. So um, so I guess I, I, I wouldn't credit my mental strength. I think I would credit my very supportive family who dealt with these really long phone calls. <laughs> well, I'm really glad kept you had me that. going. <laughs> Definitely. I'm really glad you had the support system. Um, so the next question I wanted to ask you was, as you got into high school and you started, um, like, like you said, like getting into labs, doing experiments, um, when did you know that you wanted to study astronomy and physics for your career? Yeah, so <clears throat> I always <clears throat> loved astronomy and physics. In fact, I loved all the, all the sciences, the physical sciences. The only one I was very scared of was biology because I didn't want to dissect a frog. <laughs> but dissections were not not my cup of tea. But all the other sciences I really loved. And what I realized was, you know, chemistry is based on the periodic table, but the, the periodic table is really based on quantum physics. And the part of physics that is most exciting to me was astrophysics. So, uh, but I had no idea, to be honest, whether astrophysics is something that could be a profession, it could be a major, it could be something that I could you know, make a career out of because I never knew or I'd never met an astrophysicist in, um, until I went to college. Um, so until I went to, so I spent a year at Bryn Mawr College um, and then I went to Cornell University. And at both these places, I had an opportunity for the first time to meet astronomers and, and do little, you know, projects, undergraduate research projects with them and really get a taste of what it is like to do astrophysics research. 
And the turning point for me was really um, a project that I did with, with Professor Jim Hauck at Cornell University. Um, sadly, he's no longer with us, but um, um, he he had a deep influence on 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 my thinking. Um, he had built one of the instruments, the spectrograph, the infrared spectrograph on uh, the Spitzer Space Telescope, and um, this is one of NASA's four great observatories. And this telescope was launched while I was a student at uh, Cornell, and um, uh, you know I. I did a tiny, tiny little piece of it. But what I saw was how uh, Professor Jim Hauck's team was looking at the data that was coming from this new telescope, new spectrograph, and the sheer amount of fun they were having um, actually unlocking the mysteries of the universe, quite literally. I mean, they were just so excited when they saw this, all the aromatic hydrocarbon feature or whatever it was, right, in this ultra-luminous infrared galaxy. And and just the, the sense of excitement and the joy they were deriving from having built this new instrument and learning new mysteries um, about the universe get unveiled in, in front of their eyes. Um, and that experience of being in there, being in his lab for um, a couple of years was really, really life changing. That's when I realized, okay, at least I, I don't know whether you know you could I could live a life as an astrophysicist, but I've got to try. This seems too much fun, so <laughs> so that's when I decided I'm going to pursue um, a PhD and, uh, and apply to grad schools and just at least try and see if this path works out. If not, well, I was graduating from the College of Engineering, so I could assure my parents I'll find a job somehow, somewhere <laughs> to earn my bread. <laughs> Yeah, that, that that's amazing. Uh, and it definitely worked out. So I'm so glad that you stuck it through. And um, yeah, everything ended up working was really great. I, it's funny that you had to tell your parents, oh, I'm still studying engineering, so I'll be fine. <laughs> I've had to talk to my parents just about that too, because they asked the same questions. <laughs> yeah, but it was, it was taught, I was doing applied in engineering physics, right? So the degree was from the College of Engineering. But if you looked at my courses, People are all astronomy, physics, math. <laughs> there were a handful of engineering courses in there, but just just the bare minimum to <laughs> to get that degree. <laughs> I had to take a couple of CS classes, you know. <laughs> Same thing. So, so now getting into sort of the next chapter of your career, um, why did you eventually end up choosing Caltech as your graduate school, and how did you end up choosing Professor Clokerney to be your thesis advisor? Ah, um, so um, I, I guess uh, when I was applying to grad schools, um, I was lucky I got admission to, to a few places. And um, I visited those places because, again, I didn't really know what any of these places were like. Um, so I, I visited these places. And, um, you know, when I visited Caltech, I really felt like a kid in a candy store. I mean, when I was listening to... Um, the research that the different faculty were doing. Um, I, I remember getting the feeling that these were seven different faculty members whose research was just, I could do any one of them for a thesis. <laughs> so would, there would be no shortage of thesis advisors at, at Caltech. Um, but most importantly, my host, who was a graduate student then, um, and who's actually one of my closest friends in life now, Anne-Marie Cody, um, was just really somebody I connected with. And, um, and I felt like the graduate student community is very supportive. 
um, that they were a good close group of friends who helped each other. I mean, I'd heard all these stories, Catholics a tough place, you know, they'd be very competitive, this, that. But when I actually visited, I just got the feeling that, well, I mean, whatever it was, it, at least these people were all in it together and they had each other's back and and um, they were very good friends and, and and they were having fun at the same time as doing their PhDs, right? I mean, and pursuing their other esoteric interests as well and and looking out for each other. So I just got a really good feeling um, when I visited visited the campus and and um, yeah, I mean, and sunshine was nice. I mean, I was from India and I was on the East Coast for a few years and you know, exploring snow, which I'd never seen before was fun, but I didn't mind going back to sunshine. <laughs> so, so California was, uh, was attractive and uh, Caltech it was. That's so nice. That's such a great story. Like people always say that when you are picking your college, you get a feeling of where you're supposed to be. So yeah. it's awesome that that worked out for you and that you still have lifelong friends. Um, but what were some of like the harder experiences or like defining moments that you had while getting your PhD at Caltech? Yeah, um, so getting a PhD is never an easy journey. Again, if anybody tells you it's a straight line, it's not. <laughs> um, so um, I would say, I mean, for me, the first question was, you know, what do I want to do my PhD in, right? Because I was just interested in too many things, right? And I was, um, I had to make a, this tough choice of picking one topic to pursue for my thesis. Um, so I'd say that was a challenge initially. And then even, even I would say my first year, another big challenge for me was the coursework because um, having done this, this uh, you know, engineering degree, I'd only taken a handful of astronomy courses as an undergrad. And Caltech has quite an intensive um, set of astrophysics courses that you need to get through in your first year. And all that material is really new to me. You know, some of my, my other friends in the first year class had taken many astronomy courses and learned, learned about stars, you know, one step at a time. And I was trying to learn, learn it all, all um, for the first time in, in a great amount of detail. Um, but again, other students really helped me um, learn the material, um, you know, uh, have coffee or even pie at 2 a.m. <laughs> I remember one time we were so frustrated with the homework, which we couldn't, we just couldn't get through. It was just taking forever that one of my friends who decided that, let's just, let's just put the homework aside, let's bake a pie instead. So <laughs> we were baking apple pie at 2 a.m. and then not to try to not, not worry about the homework due the next day. So it was all, you know, that is all part of the, Part of the fun, part of the, you know, staying up late to try to learn this material. Um, but the hardest challenge, I think, in grad school was in, in the later years when I'd actually picked my thesis. I was very excited about it. I wanted to find um, these cosmic fireworks and the luminosity gap between novae and supernovae. And we had a plan, right, um, to do this with my thesis advisor, Professor Kulkarni. Um, except that plan A, B, and C in my thesis failed. <laughs> okay. We did not find any of these transients that we were looking for in the luminosity gap between novae and supernovae. And you know, the first, first one or two times, it's okay. But when it happens a third time, right? I mean, then you really need to look deep inside you for the resilience to keep going. Right? Um, and I would say that was, that was um, 
um, you know, tough moment um, and um, you know, required finding, looking, looking deep inside to see this, this is a question I really, really want to answer, you know, how much more am I going to put into this to try to do, to get through it. And um, I think that's, that's, that, that resilience, I would say is the key characteristic to, um, to getting through to the finish line of any PhD and especially PhD topics, which are in the sort of high risk, high gain category, right? Um, and thankfully plan B did work out and I did graduate, <laughs> but, um, but um, it takes that resilience to bounce back after, after a few failures, a few dead ends, right? And, and even in those dead ends, look for, look for what you were not looking for, right? I mean, appreciate sort of the flowers on the, that along the way, right? I mean, so we didn't find what we were looking for, but there were other scientific um, um, mysteries that we could make a little bit of progress on and, and learn something about, right? So keeping an open mind and eyes open for that and, and not ignoring those things that you were not looking for when you designed the project was part of that resilience to, to keep going to the next step, to the next step, to the next effort um, to try to solve your your uh, thesis question. Oh, well, thank you for the advice. <laughs> That's very good. <laughs> That's... I hope I'm not scaring you. <laughs> no, 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 definitely, definitely. Uh, no, I definitely, I definitely understand. Um, and especially with the type of um, astrophysics that we that like you've done in your career, and I'm going to do in my career. It's definitely that the resilience is definitely much needed for this for this sort of field. Um, but yeah, that's really amazing to hear that you're able to stick through it and produce such a high impact thesis, which I've read part of. Um, I'll probably read the, I'll probably read most of it as I get through my career. But yeah, it was really interesting so far, at least. <laughs> so now getting into the next chapter of your career, um, you ended up getting a Hubble Fellowship and you used it at the Carnegie Institution for Science at Princeton. So what were some of the main scientific questions that you were interested in studying at the time with this fellowship? Um, and why did you choose Princeton to do it at? Yeah, um, so um, postdoc was the next adventure. And um, having this combination of um, this joint fellowship between Carnegie and uh, Princeton was was really fun um, because um, you know, I could have deep theoretical discussions with different professors at Princeton and use the world's most amazing telescopes um, at Las Campanas Observatory and really learn how to um, finesse those and come up with new ideas for instrumentation and, and, um, and telescopes and observatories at, at Carnegie. And Carnegie just has a, such a supportive um, uh, mentoring program for its postdocs. Um, so when I was a postdoc, that's when um, I was very interested in multi-messenger astronomy. Um, it was, but the only problem was it was considered a far-fetched dream, right? Because there was a postdoc between 2011 and 2015. So this was all before the detection of gravitational waves by advanced LIGO. And it was, I mean, they'd been trying for 30 years, right? And not found gravitational waves. So there were many a jokes about, you know, whether or not, or when or whether or not gravitational waves would ever get detected. And and not only did I want gravitational waves to get detected, I wanted an electromagnetic counterpart to go with it. Um, so, so my dream was considered very far-fetched, to be very honest, by many, 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 many of the senior faculty. Um, but, um, 
that said, I mean, those were the years where I wanted to start preparing for this field. And I was very interested in this field and, and what challenges it may present when it actually happens. Um, because I was more optimistic, maybe more naive, but more optimistic <laughs> about that this will happen and this will happen soon. And, um, uh, and the preparation actually um, was, was um, where I received a great amount of mentoring and advice and direction and, and a lot of freedom in um, just trying out new ideas, right? And some worked, some didn't, you know, very similar to my PhD. But um, at least I could lay the groundwork for um, research that I wanted to do for the next several years to come. And um, I would say, you know, here I should add that the director of Carnegie at that time was Wendy Friedman. And uh, she was really great about meeting with the postdocs one-on-one -on -one at regular intervals. And I remember um, there's one meeting in particular where I'd gone to a conference and um, a very senior faculty member at a very prestigious institution um, had pretty much, you know, was really, really like I'd given a talk and he was really, really, really like had gotten all sorts of weapons out to try to attack me at the end of this talk. And I was very scared. I was just completely like taken aback. I was like, and basically, I mean, this person was trying to get me to quit astronomy or intimidate me or, you know, really just scare me out of the field. And um, I'd just come back from this conference and I had this meeting uh, with the director of Carnegie. And I was very scared going into the meeting because he had said all these things about, you know, that he had just said so much that I just went into the meetings feeling really scared. And um, uh, so that day when he said, okay, let's, why don't we just go get a cup of coffee instead, okay, <laughs> instead of sitting in my office. Um, so, so we went and got a cup of coffee and I talked to her about this whole experience and how I, you know, I felt like maybe, I don't know if I was doing something very wrong, you know, I mean, obviously this is a very senior professor um, at a very prestigious university. I mean, you know, I just wanted, I was just really confused as, as to how to react. And... Um, Wendy's reaction first she listened to like my whole whole spiel and then her reaction was just so calm through the whole thing and then she's then then her reaction was you know this was a hidden compliment so like, what do you mean hidden compliment you know this is, this is the most uh, uh, difficult conference talk I've ever given and I've never received so much critical feedback um, all you know directly on the face in front of everyone without knowing how to how to respond. She's like, no, this very senior faculty member feels threatened by you. And so, so he's trying to get you to quit because he doesn't want competition. But in fact, your ideas are really very good. And that's what he's trying to say in all of this, but disguise it through all these harsh words because he's threatened. And I was like, okay, then. <laughs> so, so I would never have come up with that myself, but um, that was, it was very important because um, you know, after one of some, some an experience like this, you do have a loss, loss of confidence or like you're just questioning, you know, what happened here or whether this is the right direction or whether this field is even fun. If it, if it has people like this in it, right? I mean, is this really the direction I want to go in? But when she said this, you know, I realized, well, I just have to learn how to navigate this, right? I mean, there's going to be some difficult moments and difficult experiences. 
and you just have to learn how to navigate them and and push forward and if you love the science that you do um and you believe in yourself and you you press you press forward you don't let what other people say or what other people try to do stop you <laughs> so uh, so it was very very important advice at a very critical juncture in my life and i'll always be very grateful for the mentoring that i received i wish you could have gotten that advice without going through all the critical feedback <laughs> and everything in the first place but it's awesome that you use that as like motivation to keep going with your work but it it seems that like the postdoc time is a little bit uncertain because you don't really know if you can get a permanent position after so how do you think if you were to give advice to someone, how do you think you can best utilize your postdoc to set yourself up well? I think that is a tough question because in astronomy, you know, there are not there aren't as many jobs as I would like, as many permanent jobs as I would like, given the number of you know qualified applicants. Um, so it is it is a tough few years, but I'd say I mean even when I was a postdoc, I I I mean at least I tried to keep an open mind about. Hey, if it works out in academia, I'll stick to academia. If it doesn't work out, I'll go to industry, right? I mean, but life doesn't stop. <laughs> so, um, and for me, I was somewhat geographically constrained with, um, I, I had gotten married already by then. Um, so as geographically, geographically constrained, I wanted to make sure that I could be in a place where, um, you know, we could, I could both personally be happy with my um, husband and um, and professionally be happy right um, so you just give it your best shot right and you try to um, try to again keep an open mind through the process right not get too attached to a particular outcome or a particular path um, and uh, what matters at the end of the day is sort of your research vision and what what you want to do over the next 10 years and what preparation can you do during your postdoc years when you have the most amount of freedom for that? Um, and also travel, right? I mean, I think I traveled a lot during my postdoc, and that was actually a very useful thing for me because um, it it helped me understand what you know life could be like in different institutions in different scenarios. And you know what when I traveled to observatories and actually saw instruments and telescopes. Yeah, um, and spoke to observatory staff, you know, and heard them before, you know, say, saying what my ideas were. New ideas came, right, in terms of what 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 was possible with a given telescope or instrument. So I think traveling um, is something that is um, uh, that can happen during your postdoc years, and that if you if you spend the time traveling, listening to and understanding the experiences of others. Um, can help really help you define what is possible, not possible for developing a research vision uh, that's powerful for the next 10 years to come. Yeah, that sounds like really powerful advice for anyone who's looking for a postdoc um, or in a postdoc right now. And again, also for my future. <laughs> getting, getting a lot of free, getting a lot of free <laughs> advice here. This is great. <laughs> Uh, so next, we want to kind of get into how you ended up back at Caltech. Um, so what was the faculty application process like for you? And how did you eventually end up getting hired at Caltech um, to be a professor? Was that something you sort of envisioned happening for a while? Like you wanted to go back to Caltech or something that just sort of happened? Uh, 
It's something I thought would never happen. <laughs> I, I never thought that I would be going back to Caltech as a professor. Um, I didn't even think about applying to Caltech um, until a conversation with one of the, the faculty members who I thought was pulling my leg when they were trying to encourage me to apply to, to Caltech. But, but that said, um, you know, after the, during the application process, um, um, I, I didn't apply to very many places because um, I, I wanted to only apply to places where, um, you know, if I got the job, I would accept it in a heartbeat. So, um, so I applied to a small number of schools and, um, and also I had you know, more time on my postdoc um, so, I, I, so that I didn't have to you know, do a, a very large round of applications. But with each one, I, I really tried to imagine what life would be like sort of with, with many years to come. And whether it's a good match, right? I mean, um, you know, the university could be great, but it may not be a good match for me or my interests or or my research abilities at that that stage. Um, and um, you know, after this initial sort of, you know, why would Caltech ever want me to come back? Uh, reaction uh, to trying to consider consider it more seriously. Um, there were a lot of things that, um, especially for Madhimas and Astrophysics, Caltech being the home of, um, of LIGO labs, uh, Caltech and MIT, the two pioneers, right, um, for gravitational waves. And um, Caltech just, I mean, knowing the place and the quality of the students when, um, and who are not afraid to take on these very risky projects and, and Madhimas and that time was in this very risky category, right, of gravitational waves not existing, um, and observatories where um, you could, again, take some of those risks um, scientifically, it started to make a lot more sense, right, in terms of being a very good match to, um, to the vision that I was getting most excited about, right, which is that one day we will have gravitational waves, and the next day we will have electromagnetic counterparts to them, okay, <laughs> which was um, at that point, you know, in, during my postdoc years, considered like a, considered a very risky um, um, proposition. So, so places which had that sort of appetite, right, where you know mistakes would happen, things might not always be. You might think you found the counterpart, but it may not be it when you get follow up data. Um, etc. So places that have that sort of appetite to um, uh, to take on projects um, like that. I mean, Caltech seemed like a better and better match. Um, and so developing the, you know, while writing the application, I, I, I got very excited about this, this tiny remote possibility that they may actually give me a job <laughs> or offer the job. Um, but that was the last of the, the offers that I actually got. Um, but I was very excited, and it was um, not so difficult then to um, to make the decision to to go and at least give it a whirl and and see how how life would turn out if if I got this job. <laughs> it's so interesting that you never thought you would go back, and now you're tenured there, <laughs> <laughs> and I'm here for life. <laughs> yeah. So, what's your favorite part? Um, about being a professor versus like being a postdoc or a student? The students, by far. Um, it's really not the telescopes, not the, 
um yeah nothing that not the furniture in my office nothing nothing like that right it really is just the students it's it's um the the part that i hadn't anticipated how important it was and and how much of a difference it would make in just in just me being a happy person you know is was was my students i mean i just had the the privilege and uh, um uh, you know the the opportunity to to work with absolutely fantastic students over the last 7 years and and i just hadn't anticipated you know that i thought it making a discovery is the the funnest thing right i mean i don't know funnest is a word maybe my son made that one up <laughs> okay <laughs> but having a student make a discovery and then come to your office with this glowing face and like this big smiles okay that that beat my own <laughs> excitement at making the discovery <laughs> so this sort of reflected glory from you know students making discoveries and coming to you um i just love that that was just something that i hadn't imagined how how excited i would be and how much it would mean to me but it it really is extremely satisfying extremely it just makes me really happy and um you know whether it's them understanding something when i'm teaching them um teaching in a course or but even more so when when i'm doing research with them and they they find something that i had just completely not never thought of or appreciated that makes my day like nothing else <laughs> so yeah that's been my highlight that's that's really amazing and really sweet um yeah i think if if more professors in the field had that same mentality then i think it, it would be a much better place um that's just like really amazing to hear um but so now getting into lord of sort of the next part of your career um what is some like the criteria you have to work towards to earn tenure because i know the process is um pretty stressful um and then so what were some of the difficulties you faced during this period of time um because sort of like the rest of your life sort of hinges on like this 4 or 5 years as your assistant professor so i guess i was just sort of wondering what that experience is like yeah um uh, that's a great question gokul and um you know i started the caltech position on september 1st 2015 as an assistant professor and i had my first child on may 30th 2015 so <laughs> 2015 was a very special year i was both trying to figure out how to be a professor and how to be a mother at the same time <laughs> and um that first year i would say um was pretty uphill i mean um i i i didn't know how much of a phase transition it would be between being a postdoc on august 31st and a professor on september 1st but it was pretty steep <laughs> there's a lot of um um there's a lot of responsibilities and a lot of things that i didn't know anything about like be it grant management um be it mentoring um uh, and or be it you know just how to teach there's so many so many things about being a professor um and especially a place like caltech right? i mean it is suddenly there's a lot of power um in the letters that you write and i i don't even know how to i didn't even know how to write a letter or a recommendation and i was like oh my god i mean this is going to change the life of this person if i don't do a good job here uh, no pressure but <laughs> but i need to figure this out rather quickly um so um so with a lot of power comes a lot of responsibility right i mean and it was um trying to make sure that i could be sort of 
true to myself, do justice to um, to whatever responsibilities I was taking on, not take on too much, um, and um, still balance all of this um, with figuring out the diaper changes and and the feeding and the, the baby part. <laughs> Um, because I didn't want to miss out on these, you know, first few moments with with a small child. Um, that the first thing I would say was um, was definitely um, definitely the hardest. And um, uh, again, there I think the only only reason I survived was because of a very supportive family, a very supportive husband, very supportive um, parents, in laws, etc um who who stuck with me through the you know stress of that i don't know how to do this <laughs> i don't know where i've landed <laughs> uh to you know let's try to work through this one step at a time one piece at a time and get to the you know other side so yeah i mean i'd say the start was was the toughest and then and then things got easy once i got the hang of different aspects of you know facets of, of being a professor um, and being a mother at the same time, right? I mean, uh, getting that balance right um, over the next few years. And the science was what was a, the single most motivating factor, right? I mean, it is such an exciting time for multi-missile astrophysics with the detection of gravitational waves and, and the science all coming together. That just that just propelled me, motivated me like nothing else, right? I mean, so that, that kept me going, um, you know, year after year. Um, and in terms of what it takes to get tenure, I don't know. Um, I think it is, <laughs> I think it is, I mean, I haven't been on enough committees on the other side that are doing the evaluation process. Um, but um, my advice is, I mean, I think, um, you know, to people who are on the tenure track is to, is to just, just do the research, the teaching, the mentoring, um, and be true to yourself with it, right? I mean, do the best you can. And and um, you know, when I figure out what happens on the other side, I will let you know. <laughs> it might take a few more years of actually evaluating other uh, applications for tenure or something to know what are the factors that actually go into it. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like a very stressful process. And I can't even imagine like dealing with all that and, and having a family and learning how to be a mother but it's great you had a lot of support yeah. um but it's also amazing how much you've achieved and like all these discoveries that you've made throughout your career um and I know that you're very like highly respected in the field but have there ever been times where you felt like you were treated differently or that people had bias against you just because you're a like a woman and from South Asia and like there's not many people that look like you in this field? Absolutely. I mean, I don't, I mean, I don't think even the faculty years were without challenge, right? I mean, um, the, to me, I mean, having a family was very important, right? I mean, yes, you know, being an astrophysicist was a dream job, Caltech was a dream job, but but having a family was, was such an important thing that I didn't want to defer it indefinitely. I was not going to, you know, put this on, put this part of life on hold. Um, but that didn't mean, you know, that I wasn't criticized for it, right? I mean, there were some pretty loud voices saying, hey, are you crazy? You just got your dream job and you're having a baby at the same time. <laughs> um, you know, why, why, why are you throwing it away before, before it starts? So I was like, oh, I'm going to try. <laughs> I'll do my best. 
you know, but um, but it was not. Um, uh, there were some very difficult conversations um, uh, with you know just the fact that you know life can't stop, um, even if you have a dream and you want to pursue that dream. Um, there's always a balancing act between your personal and professional choices, and um, and you know they, that's when and. Um, when you're when your mother for young child, one of the biggest constraints is travel, right? Um, and I was just telling you how important travel was during my postdoc years. Um, in that first year and two, first, I would say first probably two years as a faculty member, I was very travel constrained, right? And I, I, I had to really make sure that the that any travel that I did made sense for the family first, right? Um, and people were not happy about, and this was pre-pandemic, right? Where you know, saying no to an invitation, <laughs> just like, what? <laughs> I was like, I'm sorry, I cannot travel right now. It was just not a good excuse, right? I got um, a lot of people, um, a lot of feathers ruffled, let's say, but but um, I had to do what, what I had to do what I had to do for my family. And, and, um, and again, I, there was, I was not willing to, to give up um, family for, for the job, right? And um, I was like, yeah, I mean, it will take me a few months before the child is old enough that I can actually travel. And the invitation is still open, then I'll come. But right now, I'm sorry, I can't. You know? um, that sort of thing. Um, there were also people, you know, the, the you know, or the, there was a set of people who, Maldima um, Sanja astrophysics from being this sort of far-fetched thing that people made fun of. Um, when the, um, first electromagnetic counterpart to gravitation wave was actually detected, people's, I mean, people were so shocked that this actually happened and happened so quickly. Um, that there was also a lot of um, competition and a lot of, a lot of people who were not in it for the science, but in it for the fame and um, really in it to try to, you know, take all the credit um, single-handedly because they thought maybe they'd win a Nobel Prize or something if they did that. So things got very difficult in 2017, um, shortly after this most majestic, most beautiful discovery of the first electromagnetic counterpart to gravitational waves. Um, I, I had never experienced astropolitics in its extreme form as I did. <laughs> um, but there again, you know, some um, some very good friends from grad school who were my collaborators, um, one of whom is Goku's advisor, <laughs> um, and uh, some very helpful senior faculty who knew how to navigate all kinds of astropolitics and keep your head focused on the science and, and press forward and not get distracted by people calling you on your phone and yelling at you. <laughs> Um, was very important, and and I think that's where, um, Simi, you know, the points you make about um, about being a woman or being of being of um, you know South Asian descent, you know, being just different from the the standard demographic, um, made it a bit harder, you know, because I I don't if I was not in that demographic, I don't think you know somebody would have the audacity to call and yell at me, okay. At the top of their voice and try to scare me. And I was a professor at Caltech. It was not like I didn't have a job or <laughs> I was not. But um, but there was all this yelling and all this, you know, just really bad behavior, which was um something again that 
you, you had to know how to navigate, how to ignore, how to focus on the science, how to how to just get past and, and realize that, look, this neutron sandwich really doesn't care about any of these people <laughs> or me for that matter, right? Um, and if you focus on the science um, and um, know who your friends are, right? And know who has your back. Um, then you press forward with a team that, that you know and trust and, um, and, and, stay, and stay focused to get through it, right? And um, that's what worked and that's what happened. Yeah, I can, I can only imagine how chaotic 2017 was. <laughs> uh, from what I've heard, it was just a really insane time for everyone in the field. And I'm sure you had to go through a lot of tough times just, just because of who you are and your identity. But again, shows the strength, the fact that you're able to persevere and just get through all of that says a lot about you. So it's really inspiring. Um, next question I wanted to ask was sort of along the same lines. Um, how do you think that we can actually increase the amount of like South Asian women that are in the field because there aren't that many in the moment? So do you think that there's a reason for this? And are there any steps that we can take as a community to increase this? Yeah, that's a good question, Gokul. Um, I think the biggest thing is um, convincing them that um, you know you can uh, you can have strike a good balance between the person and the professional, right? I mean. Um, uh, I feel like a lot of times, a lot, if I look at my friends um, from school and from indoor, from um, you know when I was growing up, um, and I see the ones you know that have pursued a professional career and some that haven't. Um, the main reason they haven't has been because they haven't been able to find a balance between the the, the family life and the, the professional life, and. Um, being more supportive of families and being more supportive of um you know especially this phase where um you know women are having children and you know that is that that overlaps with sort of when they're applying for you know their, their permanent positions and and jobs and all the early parts of their career right sort of getting that balance right um through examples through um universities just being more open and more supportive with childcare. Uh, options for um, women at this this stage um, I think that will go a really long way um, so that it's not you don't have to choose between one or the other right if you can sort of do them both right and do justice to them both right um, that that is that is what we have to try to make as feasible as possible given that there are still only 24 hours in the day and only seven days in the week but having a good uh, like Caltech is a very good child care uh, center, which really helped me out a lot in those first few years. Um, similarly, if other institutions also have good childcare centers, support for um, women with young children, um, support, you know, just more respect um, for, um, for fa family commitments that may take precedence over uh, professional uh, commitments, right? That sort of balance. Um, a better balance between work and life then I think would go a long way. Yeah, that's that's really great to hear um, that Caltech has such a supportive child support center, um, child childcare center, and I hope other institutions also have the same because I think it would really go a long way and especially for helping what you're talking about. Um, so now getting into sort of looking ahead into your future. Um, 
now that you've achieved tenure, what are some of the main goals that you have in mind to achieve for the rest of your career, um, both professionally and personally? Yeah, I mean, um, I feel like the tenure thing has just basically helps you think on a longer time scale. Um, so um, there's a telescope in um, Antarctica that I'd like to build for looking for infrared fireworks. Um, this is not something that, again, will happen on a overnight or on a short time scale. Right? This requires a longer time scale um, of planning and thinking and, um, and developing. Um, but I feel like I can pursue that now in earnest uh, because I do have a um, um, little bit more flexibility and, and, a, and a longer time scale to, that I could work on. Um, also, post tenure, I feel like there are a lot more responsibilities um, in terms of not just my own research, but sort of the, um, developing the strategic vision for astrophysics, for Caltech astronomy as a department as a whole, right? Um, or being involved in more university-wide committees and responsibilities. So there's some very new um, responsibilities that I've taken on both at Caltech and also sort of more on a national or international scale for, um, uh, say, Rubin Observatory, Roman Observatory, et cetera, uh, which um, are, again, a new, um, uh, new way of thinking in terms of not just focusing on my research and what I'm going to do uh, with my students in the next few years, but um, sort of where the field is going in the coming decade and the decade ahead um, at the Caltech level, at the national level, at the international level. Um, so that broadening of um, the research horizon, so to speak, right? And and where, where things are going, um, has been, you know, sort of the biggest change in the past year that I've had, had tenure. Um, yeah, and um, personally, just enjoying my son growing up and <laughs> getting ready for my second child. So <laughs> uh, the children are the, you know, the highlight of highlight of my my personal life. So yeah, that's that's they are they are the sons around which personal life revolves around. <laughs> That sounds, uh, that's really amazing. Uh, and I'm glad that you have the time now to sort of think about really long-term. It must be really nice to have the stability and to really think about all science and personal goals that you want to achieve. So that's really great to hear. Um, so the last question we wanted to ask um, on this side of things was a little bit more general, I guess. At the end of your year, at the end of your career, when you retire, what do you hope to be remembered for? You've already made such a lasting impact on the community scientifically and personally on a lot of people like me, Kishle for sure, and a bunch of other your students who <laughs> speak really highly of you because you made such an impact on their lives. So what type of legacy, I guess, do you want to leave on the astrophysics community? I have no idea, <laughs> um, I, I don't know. I mean, I think if I'm remembered, hey, that's already a win. <laughs> if I'm not forgotten and remembered for something, anything, uh, I'd be happy. And, um, and to me, as I said, you know, I mean, the, the highlight of my, my uh, of being a professor is the students. And um, if the students are happy and go on to live good lives and good careers, and then my job is more than done. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, as long as they, they, they are happy in whatever careers they pursue after, they, after working with me, and 
I'd say that would be my biggest prize. I love that. That's really sweet. And it <laughs> seems like all your students are doing great right now. So you're doing a wonderful job. Um, Thank you. But, of course. But before we end up, we're just going to ask you some quick hitter questions. So our first mm -hmm. one is, um, what's your favorite paper that you've written in your career so far? Oh, um, I think the one on the gravitational wave event from August 17, 2017, the first electromagnetic counterpart to gravitation is that one. Yep, definitely amazing paper. <laughs> <laughs> um, our next one is, what would you have done in your career if you did not study astrophysics? Hmm. I'd probably be back in Indoor helping my parents with the family business or something. I right now, right now no, they're not doing cows; they're doing real estate development. So maybe that, <laughs> but some something back home. That would be nice. I hope you get a chance to go back to India as much as possible. I know it's been hard with like COVID and everything, but that way, like you can see your family more and everything. But um, what are three of your favorite hobbies outside of work? Oh, um, right now it's really my son, my son, and my son. <laughs> but um, you know, when the second child is born. I don't know if it's a boy or girl. That will get added to the list somewhere. <laughs> but um, no, I used to do a lot of other things, but between astronomy and 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 the family, right now there's not much time to seriously pursue other hobbies yeah it seems like you have a jam-packed schedule <laughs> definitely <laughs> um the last one we want to ask are your three favorite indian dishes oh <laughs> okay um what do i feel like eating right now <laughs> so i'd say for an appetizer i'd go with um pani puri which is you know these these balls where you stuff spicy green water and potato and chickpeas and one bite you try to eat the whole thing that's always fun um for main course i'd go with um, paneer masala and ramali roti <laughs> and uh, that uh, and then for dessert i guess i'd go with rasgullas which are these milky white very soft balls um and we had the most amazing uh, rasgullas growing up because the milk from our dairy would go straight to this one lady who would make the softest, most amazing uh, <laughs> rasgullas that I've ever eaten. So, <laughs> yeah, those are my three dishes, Goku. <laughs> yeah, I'm also a big fan of Pani Puri. <laughs> all right. <laughs> but, but those were all the questions that we had for you today. Thank you so much for taking the time. It was really Those pleasures all mine. And thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. We really appreciate it. We know how busy your schedule is clearly. And it means a lot that you're able to take time and just drop so many knowledge bombs on everyone. <laughs> definitely, <laughs> I definitely learned a lot from, from uh, just this hour. So yeah, really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. And best wishes to you both. Thank you. Bye. Take care.